0: This morning we're we're going to continue on our series uh, from faith to love, uh, knowing Christ, and this is a series we've been doing on the eight qualities of effective and fruitful knowledge in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, our text that we've been using has been in Second Peter one uh, three through nine. Uh, and this is the text that we're, we've been doing this series off of. It says this, it says his divine power. In other words, the power that he has, that is supernatural. He is through that. He has granted to us. He's given, it's a gift to us. All things that pertain to life and godliness. We literally have everything we need for life and godliness because he's granted to us supernaturally. How through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence because we know him. And we're called to his glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's talking about there is a time in which we will be resurrected fully in the nature in which we are intended to have in him. And then he says this, because of all that, for this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. He's saying, listen, these eight qualities, they start in faith, they end with love, and they build one or another. And we've spent, I think, four four lessons going through faith, and we're going to start this morning on a discussion of virtue. And I say start because that's all we're going to get to is just starting on it. We'll, we're going to begin the conversation on it. But why? Because Peter says, if we make these qualities a part of our life, and we increase in them, they keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful. In other words, we become effective and fruitful in knowing Jesus, in living Jesus. And he goes on and says this in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's the text we've been working through. For uh, just a commercial, we're, we're working through the entire book of 2 Peter on Wednesday nights. Invite you to, to come out and check that out. And this is a kind of a supplement to it. They're hand in hand with it. We're going through the, 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 the book as a whole. And it's important. Why is Peter talking about these things? Because he's telling us what it really means to be a believer. Because he's also going to turn around and talk about what's going on in the body, who the false teachers are, what they're saying And so he's he's putting them, juxtaposing them next to one another. It's kind of like, how do you discover what a counterfeit is? You first need to know what the real thing is. If you know what the real thing is, it's easy to spot what's not the real thing. That's kind of the thoughts. Now, what's also important about this book is that Peter tells us that he's about to leave. He knows he's going home. He knows he's leaving this body. And so, if you will, this is one of those books to me. It's a, like Second Timothy. It's, 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 here is this great character, um, who has so much wisdom to give. He, he sat at the feet of Jesus for years. He's lived faithful to him. And now he's about to depart and he says, these are the things I want to leave with you. These are the things. Get this. Take this when I leave. And that's the the context here. All right, so what is our goal? To be effective and fruitful in knowing Jesus. Peter's given us eight qualities to do that. Starts in faith, ends in love. So it starts with a gift from God, and it ends in demonstrating his very character and nature. So faith was our beginning point. We talked about that. It's a gift that God's given to us coupled it's coupled in link with grace faith and grace go together you almost can't tell the line between them and through faith the righteousness of God has been revealed to us it's revealed in us it's revealed through us and it's 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 most specifically revealed through us when we go through trial and testing and that's kind of where we left off um The next one is virtue. Now, this is a fascinating, uh, uh, fascinating quality. Um, it's, it's the first of the six qualities that Peter uses that really are hardly used in the Bible at all, but are used throughout Hellenistic world. Roman and Greek culture use these six qualities over and over and over again. And Peter takes these qualities they would be very familiar with and he repurposes them and puts them in a biblical context. Because in the, in the Hellenistic world, they would have never started with faith. They would have never ended with love. He bookends them with the, these qualities come from a source outside of us and they end up demming a, a source, demonstrating a source greater than us. And that's what he does with these. He repurposes them. So this word, uh, virtue, in the, in the Greek, it's arete, arete, and I'm, I actually had that on good authority. I actually called my son yesterday and my daughter. They were together, and both of them confirmed. I'm saying it right now, so arete. <laughs> so um, uh, what does it mean? It, it's translated as excellence. It's translated as virtue. Uh, it's only used five times in the scriptures. Paul uses it once in Philippians He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, that's that word, arate, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you all. So, Paul's using them in a similar fashion. He uses it in a similar fashion as Peter here. Um, Peter uses it in his first letter. He says it in his first letter. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession. And every one of those, by the way, is a quote from somewhere in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and that, why? Why are we those things? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, the moral excellence, the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's, ex- that's Peter in the first letter. And that's very similar to how he introduces us to this in the second letter. Here it is in the second letter. It's the first place we see it. For this very reason, I'm sorry, back up. Uh, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We've given everything that we need. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us. What are we called to? His own glory and excellence, moral virtue. That's our calling. All right. And then he goes on and he says, because of that, we need to supplement our faith with virtue. So that's our subject. That's kind of the background. That's where we're going. We're going to spend, a, 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 I don't know, have three, four lessons on it. We'll see. Um, And the first thing that hits me is Peter talks about knowledge. The whole subject is knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus. If you know Jesus, it's easy to know who the false teachers are. And for for Peter, as he's talking about knowledge, it means intimate knowledge, personal knowledge. Now, let me say something about intimate knowledge. This is a commercial for when we talk about knowledge. Intimacy is not a feeling. Because in our culture, intimacy is a feeling. Oh, you're intimate with someone. That's a feeling. Intimacy is not a feeling. It means you actually know them. You have a relationship. And sometimes relationships are bumpy. But that's a commercial we'll get there. Uh, That's later. Um, so for him intimacy is knowledge so but but he says you have to have faith and virtue first why faith and virtue before knowing him how how does all this couple well we talked about faith why faith is a foundation we have in any relationship if you're going to get to know somebody you have to trust them that's why faith comes first there has to be a moment of trust you're not going to open up to somebody you don't trust You're not going to happen. This is why faith is the foundation. And how do we know we can trust Jesus? The cross. The cross. That's how we know we can trust him. And so we spent weeks talking about that. But that brings us to virtue. How is, how is virtue a foundation? How does virtue come in our life before knowing him? So back at verse three, we're called, we're what? We're, we're told that we're called to his glory and excellence. We're called to his virtue. We're called to the moral excellence of Jesus. Now, let's get, can we get real for for five seconds? Any of us have a problem with that? I mean, how many of us feel like, man, I've got, man, I got this down. The moral excellence of Jesus, easy thing. Now, how can I be called to it on the one hand and yet find myself so short of it on the other? Uh, maybe that's not a dilemma for you. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> a lot of time trying to figure this out. How can I be called to his excellence on the one hand and look at my life and go, well, that, that's not his excellence. In fact, far from it. This is a real problem. I will tell you this right now. It begins and ends in his grace. It begins and ends in his grace. Um, his grace... See, we, we get grace wrong. Grace isn't something that just says it's okay to fall short. Grace doesn't say it's okay to fall short. It's all right. You know, there's grace for that. That's not what it says. Grace absolutely meets us exactly where we are. What's amazing about grace is, listen, anytime we think about something holy and pure, I, I want you to, okay, think, let's put it in this in this light. Think about an amazingly beautiful wedding dress right now. And we think of the purity of that. And, and, and why not? we saw a dress that had literally gold thread in it. I mean, just amazing. Now, how many of us would dream of putting that on and going out and digging in the garden? Well, why not? Because it would make it impure the moment I did. Our mindset is purity can't be touched by impure. Grace is just the opposite. Why? Why Why is that our mindset? Because the moment purity is touched by something impure, purity becomes impure. Grace is just the opposite. It is purity that makes the impure pure. It works in reverse. That's what grace is. So grace is, meets us exactly where we are, not to stay where we are, but to lift us up, to encourage us, and to empower us beyond where we are. That's virtue. Do you see it? Well, I hope so by the time we're done five lessons on it. So anyway. <clears throat> um, so... Uh, moral excellence, virtue of necessity, requires repentance. So as we make the real effort, if we take real strides towards actually having moral excellence in our lives, it's going to take real repentance. Now, uh, there's a great article by Tim Keller. I've referenced it many times. If you want it, send it to me. It's short. It's easy. There is a difference between false repentance and real repentance. Let me just say it short. False repentance is when I'm trying to get a blessing or trying to escape a punishment. Real repentance is when I just want to love Jesus and let him wash me. I'm just coming back to him. That's the short version. Send me a message. I'll send you the article. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Um, But... But if I am going to have virtue in my life, it's going to take real repentance. Repentance of necessity requires what? It requires understanding how unfathomable are the depths of grace. How absolutely magnificent is his grace. It requires understanding the, the absolute glorious perfection of his character. Why? Because when we see it, we see how short we are from it. And it's in those moments we're actually coming to know him. That's intimacy. Intimacy. That's intimacy. And, and what does he do when we do that? He begins to chisel our flesh. He begins to chisel it. And we start off-putting the old man. And we start on-putting Christ. Virtue starts coming out of who we are. We are being made in his image. So intimacy then is, is when we slowly and suddenly come to know Jesus. Sometimes it happens slow, little by little Sometimes there's punctuated moments But it's not knowing about him It's actually knowing him And so it's it's through this that we actually know him So therefore, in striving for, for his virtue, moral excellence I would have three propositions Number one, I must come to see Jesus to see what virtue is I have to see him I have to see who he is. I have to, I have to get a glimpse of him, a revelation. Number two, I must be humbled in understanding how far I am from him. And number three, I must trust him to make my efforts efficacious, effective in becoming like him. And when all this is happening, what is actually happening is the Holy Spirit's working in me. And I, and, and faith is being demonstrated as my foundation and his virtuous character just begins to flow out. This all happens in concert and working together, all right? So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at number one. We're going to begin to look at number one. I must come to see Jesus to see what virtue is. I must come to Jesus to see what virtue is. That's lesson number one. So virtue uh, definition, moral, excellent state of being. It's a state of being. I love there's a uh, there's a great, uh, um, probably one of the best, um, uh, lectures I've heard on virtue was given by Jordan Peterson. I've got the link to it on YouTube. If you want to go find it, you can just look it up that way. Virtue is a necessity. So I'm going to borrow a lot of quotes from him as we go through this. I'm, I've got a lot of quotes from a lot of people this morning, but I like what he's, how he, he starts it off and the way of thinking about this to get our head wrapped around it. Virtue, ethics, morality, it isn't a field of study. It's a mode of being. Upon which all fields of study rest. It's also a mode of being on which everything you do in your life rests. The way you understand yourself or fail to understand yourself. The way you understand other people or fail to understand other people. And more deeply than that, what role it is that you play in your life in this world. Virtue is a state of being. It's not something that's simply something that you do. And so therefore, you can't really determine what constitutes virtue virtue, until you determine what constitutes being. Being comes out of you. It's not something you do. It's not external from you. It's an expression of who you are. So what is being? Virtue, I'm saying. Virtue is that. So what is being? When we talk about being, what what do we mean by that? Being simply means it's the essential nature of something rather than what it does. Here's it is. I'm a human being, not a human doing, right? I'm a human being. It's an essential nature of who I am, not what I do. And uh, as a human being, I am a reflector of God. I'm created in the image of God. This is why God says his name is I am, not I do. We're a reflector of the I am, not the I do. Do y'all follow that? Let's look at Exodus. This is Matthew. I mean, this is a Moses talking to the Lord about this. But Moses said to God, look, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? Then what should I say to him? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, so you must say to the Israelites, I am sent me to you. And God said again to Moses, so you say to the Israelites, Yahweh. The God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my remembrance from generation to generation. Now, this next quote is from Michael Heiser's website. Great article on the breakdown of how do we know it's Yahweh, Where's the meaning come from. If you're into that and you want to read it, check that out. It's, it's fantastic. Gets into the grammar and all that other stuff for, for us Bible nerds. Um, But in the short, what that means, what it actually means, it actually has a meaning. Yahweh means something. It means he who causes to be, to exist, to be. He who causes to be. I love this definition of God. God is the only being in which his reason for his existence, his purpose for his existence, is contained within himself. All other beings, the reason for their existence, is outside of themselves. So... If we're going to find our being, our state of being, why we exist, why we're here, we're not going to find it inside ourselves. This is why the text tells us we are called to his glory, his excellencies. Do you see that? Because our purpose, our reason isn't found within, it's found from him. All right. So virtue... It's a mode of being, which which everything we do in our life rests. It's the way you understand yourself. It's the way you understand other people. It's it's the role you play in your life. Um, So then, virtue is about transformation. If I'm going to live a virtue, if I'm going to have virtue in my life, I'm going to be transformed. I'm going to become. But what exactly am I going to become? Who am I going to be? So, let's talk uh, for a few minutes about what it means to be a human being. Now, um, this is a really interesting subject. If you Google that subject, you will have pages and pages and pages, and most of it won't, won't even make sense. But that's all right. There is a worldview that is prevalent. The prevalent worldview is a materialist worldview. And what the, um, when we look at the world from a materialist worldview, and we're going to look at it for a minute, we fall short in understanding that. That there are non-material realities, and I'll explain all this in a minute. There's non-material realities about our existence, and the material world cannot explain them. So when we only look at the world as material, as physical, as you know, uh, time, matter, and space elements, it it has no ability to actually explain the realities in which we actually live our lives every day that are non-material. So... Moral excellence, interestingly enough, it cannot find its existence in the material world. If it's something that's real, and it's something outside of us, then it's something we can't make up. But the material world says there is nothing outside of us, so we just make it up. Does everybody follow what I just said? Because, And the reason why I'm saying this, I'm taking the time to do this, is because this is exactly where we live. Listen, the, the issues that we're facing in our culture today, it's not just that, well, you know, uh, this person believes that and this person believes this. It's that at foundation, there is a way we look at the world and it's different. It's opposed. And if we don't understand how others look at the world, whatever you say will only be heard the way they're hearing it, not the way you're saying it. So if we don't understand how other people are hearing things, we're not actually communicating. And by and large, in the world today, it's about looking at the world from a material perspective. What is that? So what exactly does that mean? I've got three quotes. Um, this first one is from Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a very famous uh, biologist. Um, he's a professor at Oxford University. Very famous atheist, and he's written a few things about this. He says this. This is in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. All appearances to the contrary. The only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way. I I shouldn't stop in the middle of my quotes, but I read that language and it's immediately contradictory. How can it be blind and also be deployed in a special way? But anyway, I'll keep going. A true watchmaker has foresight. He designs his cog springs and plans with interconnections with a future purpose in his mind's eye. Natural selection... The blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. It has no mind, has no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. It can be said to to play the role of the watch. If it can be said to play the role of a watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. Now to explain this a little further, I'll read a quote from him out of uh, out of his book, Out of Eden. In the univ- in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And he goes on in the same book to say, DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. This is the materialist view of the world. What we do is pre-programmed into our DNA, and we can't help it. Now, Stephen Hawking, is a quote here, he says, look, which he says, that's absolutely true, we just don't know what we're going to do. That doesn't make it any better. Did you hear? There's no good, there's no evil, it's just blind, pitiless indifference. Now, let me ask you a question. If your son or your daughter just came to you, and they were horribly violated, are you going to say, hey, you know, Person was just acting to their DNA. There's no good. There's no evil. That's just blind, pitiless indifference. We're just just dancing to its music. Is that an answer? There's another uh, atheist scholar. He's a biblical scholar. His name is Bart Ehrman, and he just wrote a blog on this uh, in January. My materialist view of the world, and he struggles with this very issue. But for now, I think I'm I'm made of one thing, matter. I've got, by my count, one body, eleven organs, eleven organ systems, seventy nine organs, roughly thirty seven trillion. Count them cells, and God knows how many molecules. He actually does, and nothing else. If some of those cells die, well, they die all the time. If enough of them die in one place at one time, it could be a problem. If one of the organs goes kaput, it could be a very big problem. If one of the vital organs goes, as we used to say in high school, it's cookies. This materialist view creates enormous conceptual problems that I wrestle with all the time, he says. If I am just matter, nothing else, how do I have any consciousness? How do I think How do I appear to make independent judgments and decisions? How do I seem to be able to do something? Who is doing it if there is no me within the body? No separate functioning will inside the brain. How can the molecules have a will? I have an answer for that. Darned if I know. He goes on, philosophers wrestle with this problem all the time, as you probably know. Some of them think they do know. I've read some of their work. I've tried to read of their other work. Some of their work is, shall we say, deep, complicated, and well, virtually in- incomprehensible to those of us who are non philosopher mere mortals. In any case, some of them think they know, but different ones have, them a- have different solutions, so they all don't know correctly, but does any? I don't know. At the end of the day, well, I myself don't know. I just don't. So here's what I say. If, if, all, if all that I am is just matter and if I have no soul, if there is no material part of my identity, then I'm free to make up whatever reality I feel. And isn't that exactly what we have in society today? The facts no longer matter because there's no transcendent significance. There's no real meaning outside of us that applies to us. There's nothing we can point to that's outside of us and say, that's it, and it applies to us. Now, Jordan Peterson, uh, as, as I said earlier, I was going to be quoting from him, he responds to this material view of the world, and I, I love how he he responds. This is, this is what he says. He says, we fail to notice... That the fundamental constituent elements of our own reality are not material. They're emotional. They're motivational, their dreams, their visions, their relationships with other people. they're conscious, they're dependent on consciousness and self-consciousness. We have absolutely no materialist explanation whatsoever for consciousness or self-consciousness, and we don't deal well from a materialistic perspective with the qualities of being. Everyone knows these realities exist. Let me sum that up. The fundamental elements, the fundamental basis on how we live every day isn't physical, it's in these non-material realities, how we feel, our emotions, what's motivating us, dreams, our visions, what we want to do, where we want to go, our goals, our relationships, the very concept of consciousness itself. None of that is material. And yet there's not a single one of us who say that is not real. There's no material explanation. What are they? They are a statement of our being. They are a statement of our existence. And so if we're going to find the answer to it, we need to have the answer to our state of being. Thus, moral excellence, which is a non-material reality. Every one of these authors were talking about moral, uh, moral things. Moral excellence, a non-material reality, doesn't stem from what we do it stems from who we are, our created purpose. So let's look at a couple of scriptures. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we know, number one, that we were created after the image and likeness of God. Number two, when Yahweh, what does that mean? The one who causes to be. Interesting now that you know the, that, what that means. When Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground, the one who causes to be, He blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now, catch what's going on here. He 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 formed out of the dust of the earth. He took from the physical, material elements of this world. He took all the the the, from what existed in time, matter, and space. He brought them together and fashioned this this physical body. And then he breathed something non-material from his being into him and made him a living being. Man is the only. Only creature in all of creation, only creature that is both connected to the physical world and the spiritual world at the same time. That's amazing. Now, it's not a part of our study this morning, but I will tell you, Jesus sealed that for eternity by taking physical on and rising in a physical body and is seated at the right hand of the father in a physical body and is returning physically. He sealed that. Anyway, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews tells us this. It tells us that we can't separate spirit and soul. Only the word of God can separate spirit and soul. He, he's saying, the Bible's saying, we are so integrated, body, soul, and spirit. It's so much one that we can't even really determine where one stops and the other picks up. What's my brain? What's my mind? What's my spirit? What's my soul? We, I mean, we can say this is what's different about them, but we can't really find that line that separates them because we're not meant to. We're not three segmented parts, we're one, we're whole, they all integrated. It's all a part of how we live. We're not supposed to live, oh, this part, now I'm living in my spirit, and now I'm living in my soul, and now I'm living, no, we're supposed to be meant to live as integrated, even as God is integrated as one, yet three identities. It comes from who we are. Ecclesiastes 3, he has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart. My goodness, you find eternity written through the, the literature, the poem, the stories, the myths of all of mankind. Beginning to end, eternity. If if all we are is, is blind, pitiful indifference, this random collocation of atoms from the from I like this one. From the goo to the zoo to you. If that's all that we are, then why in the world do we care about all these eternal things? There's no basis for it. It makes no logical sense. All right, so, definition number one of being human. I'll have a few definitions. This is number one. To be human is to know that even though we are very much a part of this world, the material world, we are more than this world. Just as we are connected to the physical, we're connected to the spiritual. In all of creation, the only being connected to both the physical and spiritual worlds at the same time is humanity, is man. We are reflections of our creator. We are images on earth. Now, if that's true, how do we live? If that's true, what does that have to do with our created purpose, our moral excellence? This is an article, uh, it's a portion, a quote from an article called Christ or Nothing. It's uh, by Greg Albrecht. He's the president and pastor of Plain Truth Ministries. This was CWR Magazine. And he, this is what he writes. This is one of the most incredible moments in the 20th century world. He, he's about to write, a, I'll, I'll just read it and we'll go from there. One of the most incredible moments in the 20th century world of higher education took place on January 1968. Malcolm Muggeridge resigned as the rector of the University of Edinburgh because he would not accept relaxing rules on campus so that students could buy and sell marijuana. He faced the student body in this speech, and courageously, in the face of heckling, shouting, and booing of young people, Muggeridge told the truth. Does that sound familiar? And this is Muggeridge, I'm sorry, this is Albrecht speaking right here, he's, he continues, Albrecht goes on, where are the educators and pastors and priests today who will tell our young people the truth instead of what they want to hear? Where are the politicians and leaders who will tell their constituencies the truth rather than manipulating them with fear and hatred? Here's a short excerpt, excerpt from the 1968 resignation speech of Malcolm Muggeridge, which some later titled Christ or Nothing, and this is what Mike Muggeridge said, as he's standing before the students. He said, the students of this university are the beneficiaries of centuries of selfless scholarship. You're beneficiaries of centuries of selfless scholarship. You are supposed to spearhead progress and carry the torch of humanity. Speaking for myself, there is practically nothing you could do in rebellion against our impoverished way of life for which I should not feel some sympathy. But how infinitely sad... How macabre that the form of your rebellion should be a demand for drugs. For the most most tenth rate sort of self-life. We await great works of art. The spirit of adventure and courage. And what do we get from you? Self-centered folly. You're on a crazy slope. For myself, I always come back to the king. To Jesus. To the Christian notion that all our efforts... That making ourselves happy, will fail, but that the sacrifice for others will never fail. As a man must become a new man, or he is no man. Or so at least I have concluded, having failed to find in in past experience and present dilemmas any alternative proposition. As far as I'm concerned, it is Christ or nothing. Goodbye, and God bless you. So what is being? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be called to the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ? So what do we learn? Out of gen- in Genesis, out of God's character, out of his nature, as a- out of a part of his being, he creates something. Time, matter, space, come from, there's nothing, and suddenly they come into existence. His creative beating causes that. You have darkness, and all of a sudden, light comes. This is this is uh, uh, an extension of his being, God, that whose imager we are. In the Gospels, Jesus, one in being with the Father, he's empowered, he's enabled by the Holy Spirit. And what does Jesus do? He literally creates life out of death. This is the Lord we are created to reflect. So when I ask you, what is being? Being is literally embodied in Jesus. Jesus is what? He's the word become flesh. Imaged at the cross. The cross is literally, literally the ultimate creative act. Think about it for a minute. Jesus takes all of the malevolence, The intentional, the purposeful, the gratuitous evil. He takes it and turns it into life. That's virtue. That's excellence. Did you catch that? Do you catch the significance? That is the ultimate creative act to take everything that is meant for evil and to turn it around and and actually create out of it new life. Uncorruptible, eternal, physical life. What flows from the cross is grace. That's grace. That's what grace does. That's the power of grace. Grace. So, what is being to us? How do we embody that? How do we image that? I'll tell you what we do. We fall short in seeking to image Christ, and we don't seek to embody his image because we fall short in failing to see that Jesus was human. We fail to understand that Jesus humbled himself to the point of setting aside his glory and fully embodied what it means to be you and I, to be human. He came in the full likeness of corruptible flesh. Therefore, what we have in Jesus, we have literally embodied living out the actual example of all that it means to be a human imager of God. All that it means to be virtue exhibited. Now, the problem is, is when we think of his perfect life, we think of his perfect life that it simply means that he's providing a sinless sacrifice on our behalf. That's how we think of his perfection. His perfection is all about this. Why? So that we can have a great escape ticket to the great party in the sky. That's what, that's what that means to us. But we miss the miracle of the word itself becoming flesh. When, when the word becomes flesh, there's a marriage going on. What is the word? The word is all non-material realities, right? We talk about emotions. We talk about motivations. We talk about visions. We talk about dreams. Those are words. Those are words we understand. Those are concepts we get. These are not, they're real, but they're non-material. That's the word. What happens in Jesus? The word becomes flesh, physical. The marriage the ultimate reality of all of these things—the bringing together in Jesus—what is demonstrated is the full creative capacity of a human imager of God. This is why Jesus says, "Listen." I may have ever read Jesus says, "Greater works than these you shall do." Have I read that? What do you mean, "Greater works than these you shall do"? Does that mean we're going to do, a, you know, like maybe there's some miracles or something? No, every time he talks about himself, he says, if you don't believe who I am, because I'm telling you, look at what I do, look at how I live, look at what's demonstrated. He says, now you are going to go in that excellence in, in the fullness of that character. And you're going to demonstrate who I am. That includes miracles, but it doesn't make it only those things. Do you follow? So let me, let me put it a different way. And this We're closing with this. We're coming to the end right now. So we just got a few more minutes. We're, we're closing out this part. Stick in with this part because this kind of brings it all together. How many remember the, the movie Chariots of Fire? Basically see Chariots of Fire. All right. A great movie if you haven't seen it. It's about these uh, um, uh, Olympic athletes in Great Britain. One of them's name is Eric Little. He's called as a missionary. And he's going to go to China as a missionary, but he's really fast. And his sister... Um, keeps chastising him. Why are you spending all this time running? Why are you doing this running? Why, are, you know, what's this all about? God's called you to be a missionary. You're not doing God's call. And so finally, there's this awesome scene when he comes to his sister, and her name's Jenny. He says, "Jenny, I am called with a purpose. I'm going to China, but God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure." He, he discovered in himself who he was created to be in, his, in reflecting the glory and excellence of God through that. You are a unique, amazing, created imager of God in this earth. You are meant to reflect his character, his nature, his glories. How are you doing that? How is that coming out of you? That's his virtue. As Muggeridge said, the students of this university are the beneficiaries of centuries of selfish scholarship. You're supposed to spearhead progress and carry the torch of humanity. We await great works of art, the spirit of adventure and courage. And what do we get? Self-centered folly. You're on a crazy slope. For myself, I've always come back to the king, to Jesus, to the Christian notion that all efforts To make ourselves happy will fail, but the sacrifice for others will never fail. A man must become a new man, or he is no man. Or so at least I've concluded, having failed to find in past experience and present dilemmas any alternative proposition. As far as I'm concerned, it is Christ or nothing. How did God make you? We're called to his glory. We're called to his excellence. What are we chasing? Are we chasing fleeting happiness that fails? Are we bracing the creative nature of the cross? How many of us thought of the cross as creative? Most of us, when we think of the cross, we think it's dour. It's dying. Oh, I'm bearing my cross. Well, yeah, it's hard. It's struggle. And we're going to talk about that. That's coming up. That's more about this. But we have to first have the right view of the cross. The cross, its essence was creative. And what it took, it took on death and created life. That's moral excellence. That's coming out of his being. And so how is God using you to bring about the fullness of all he wants to create in the world? How is he demonstrating his, his moral virtue His excellencies, all of these creation itself is the moral virtue of God. What are we chasing? So this morning, we focused on, we have to see Jesus to see what virtue is. We looked at virtue as excellence of our state of being. If we look at, if we, if we look at the way our culture looks at it, what do we see? We make it up on our own. But if we look at what the Word of God says, it says, this is a reality that exists outside of ourselves. It's a reality we find in the very character and nature of Christ himself. And by putting Christ on, we're literally allowing Christ to come out. And when we put Christ on and allow him to to come out, not only is he chiseling off and putting off what is dead, he's also bringing out what is life, what is creative, Where is it that you're finding that pleasure in your creation with your creator? When I run, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's worship. That's worship. And that's where we finish this morning.